0: You may be seated, or are you usually standing for the reading of Scripture? I'm sorry, my mistake, I missed the asterisk. So this morning I invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, in uh, the book of Malachi, and we'll read in chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. So Malachi two seventeen through 3, 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And now let's turn in the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, and we will read verses 1 through 11. So Second Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. Be to God. Please pray with me. Our God and Father, you are the God of truth. You are the God who makes himself known and reveals his will. We pray that this morning you would use your truth to sanctify us, to equip us for the life and work that you call us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated now. I have, as a guest preacher, you have the privilege of getting a chance to choose whatever you want to preach on. Uh, But also, as a guest preacher, that means that you may preach to a congregation that you do not know at all. And so, if I were to have to choose a text knowing that it uh, addresses particular needs or concerns or uh, issues in this congregation, I would be in trouble. However, we have the assurance that every single scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for all Christians wherever they are. Thanks be to God God for that. So, as a preacher, I'll tell you, I don't really spend much time thinking about what text I'll use this Sunday. I just preach through a book that I've chosen, and wherever I am, I'm preaching through whatever passage I've I've been preparing for. And so... This morning I chose to preach on 2 Peter, not because I think uh, this letter was written especially for you today. It was written for you and for all Christians in all places at all times. And so I have confidence that whatever Peter tells us, whatever God tells us through Peter, will be profitable to you. This letter was written a long time ago by the Apostle Peter, as we read in the first line. He is writing to a church that is facing a certain number of problems. And in particular, they're facing problems caused by people whom Peter calls false teachers. And so he's writing to this church to help them work through that issue and uh, help, to help them deal with the false teachings, but also to help them deal with the consequences of that false teaching. Sometimes we tend to think that ideas are just ideas. They don't make much of a difference. However, what we find is that ideas, teachings, do make a very big difference in very practical ways all the time. And so Peter is writing to this church to not only warn them about false teachings and how they can be seductive and how they can uh, drag us away from Christ and Uh, lead us to live in a way that is uh, not Christ-honoring, but on the contrary, uh, He is giving those believers what they need to do that. And uh, we learn in what follows in the letter that Peter knows that his time is short. Uh, When he writes the letter, he uh, is aware that he will probably pass into glory relatively soon, and so he's he's writing to this church and kind of giving them his final word. It is a sort of uh, spiritual testament, uh, not testimony, but testament. It's also a testimony. But The point is, he is trying to tell them, look, you really need to remember this. In fact, a bit later in the letter, he will tell them about the need of remembering this, and in fact, of reminding us, reminding ourselves of those things. And he, he will tell them, I will remind you of these things always. I will never stop. In fact, he has not stopped because in God's providence, those words were written down and preserved. And so even today, we can hear Peter telling us, reminding us of those truths that we need as we seek to live a life that is worthy of the gospel, as we seek to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and remain faithful like all letters, uh, this letter is starting with a greeting. In fact, it's starting with saying who is writing and who is writing to who, greeting them, and then uh, giving them a sort of a summary of what, what he wants to communicate to them through this letter, sort of a, a an abstract of what it's all about. Now, if I were given a number of hours, we could spend time looking at all those things carefully and in detail. But I think some of us want to have lunch today. Uh, so this morning, what I will try to do is, is give you a little bit of, a little bit more context and then get into some of the key features or elements in what Peter is entrusting to us and, uh, in, in his letter. So first... Um, who is writing? Well, who is writing is Peter. But notice that Peter introduces himself as a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ. It is a very interesting combination. It's not an unusual combination, on the contrary, but it is a very intriguing and important combination because as an apostle, Peter comes to those people with authority. He comes to them as an appointed ambassador of Jesus Christ himself. He is coming to them as one who has the authority of Christ himself in addressing the church. And so that means that what he's telling them, what he's teaching them, must be listened to carefully. But at the same time, he also defines this role of an apostle as being the role of a servant. An apostle has a lot of authority, but it's not an authority that is their own. It is an authority that is delegated to them. It is an authority that is qualified, that has limits. Just like an ambassador today doesn't have the right or freedom to do or say whatever they want. They are there to represent a government or a king, and they are there to exclusively communicate what that government or king tells them to communicate and do whatever that government or king tells them to do. And that's it. And that role is a role of a servant, it is someone who is here to serve. To serve Jesus Christ, of course, to serve the gospel and to serve the church of Christ. And so, though Peter comes with high authority, he also comes as with the authority of somebody who is here to serve. And what is absolutely striking in this greeting is that remember, it's Peter talking. It's not just one of the twelve apostles that none of us can remember the name of. And if I were to test you how many of the twelve apostles' names can you remember, you know, we might come short. But I'm sure, absolutely sure, that Peter will be on that list, because Peter is one of the prominent apostles. In fact, in the Gospels, he often speaks for the apostles, and he kind of represents them all. He's also the one who has, um, let's say, a very remarkable personality. He is the one who, uh, we're told, professed that Jesus was the Christ and was commended for it, just for, very soon thereafter, being rebuked for questioning the fact that Christ said that he was going to suffer and die. Peter is the one who is very prominent among the apostles. He is there; um, he kind of speaks for them, represents them. And yet, and, you know, and of course, as, as, as one of the apostles, he was with Jesus for years in his teaching. He also was with Jesus on the, light, the night in which he was betrayed. He denied him three times. Um, but he was there when Christ was risen, and he was restored by Christ and reaffirmed three times as well in his love for Christ and his role as one of the apostles. So he's very prominent He has had an experience that is unequaled, and yet he tells those people, he defines his readers as those who have been apportioned a faith of the same value, of the same worth as his. Do you find yourself sometimes, occasionally, thinking, ah, I wish I had been there. Would be so much easier to believe and to obey and to trust if I had been there and heard Jesus himself, seen him, touched him, being there after the resurrection. Life would be so easy. What Peter tells us is that actually our faith Is of the same nature, of the same quality, and of the same profit as his. And so, though he's an apostle, he's addressing them as equals. And why is it the case? Why do we have, why has it been apportioned to us a faith of equal standing as that of the apostles? Well, very simple. Because of the justice or righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice that he's not saying the mercy, which, you know, we would expect something like, oh, it's because of the mercy, the grace of God. It is the justice, the righteousness of God. Because Christ has redeemed every single one of his people with his blood. The price has been paid for everyone. The the benefit, the blessing that comes from this is the same whoever you are. It is the justice of God. Christ did pay the price. He did earn eternal life for His people, and therefore, God in His justice can only give to all the redeemed what Christ has earned and deserved. Equally. Well, if that is true, then it seems pretty logical that we can, um, we can receive by faith the, the, the greeting or the blessing of Peter when he says, "Grace and peace be multiplied to you." Because that grace and that peace comes, or come, plural, from the work of Christ and is received through faith. But notice that that grace and that peace are multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace are not magical powers that just work like this. They're not just falling down from heaven. They exist in a very concrete, real way. They exist in a relationship, in the context of a relationship we have with God and Christ. When he talks about knowledge, what he has in mind is not a a school-like knowledge, a memorization of random facts. It is a knowledge of God Himself. It is a knowledge of Christ. Yes, that involves knowing things about them, but more than that, it involves knowing them. The notion of knowledge that Peter is using here and will repeat many times through the letter is a knowledge that is not a fixed uh, amount of details and information that would be like a set thing that we can just pass around. What he's talking about, is talking about a dynamic way of knowing, something that is active, that grows. It is something that is lived. And so he's telling us that this grace and peace we can receive from God is connected to that knowledge of God and Christ, to that relationship. And if that is true, well then, we have been gifted... Everything that leads to or aims to life and godliness, life and piety. It doesn't appear in the English translation, sorry, uh, but actually there is a connecting word between the the greeting, blessing of Peter, and that that connecting says, so, therefore, or as, because this is true, this also is true. And so what we receive from God, this peace and grace and this knowledge, leads to being granted, being gifted everything that is necessary in order for us to live in a way that is pious, that is godly. There's nothing missing. There's nothing lacking. That echoes the teaching of Paul where he says that in in Christ, in the heavenlies, we have every spiritual blessing. That uh, also um, sounds a bit like what we've read earlier in 1 Peter. That uh, praise praise be to God that He caused us to be born again to a living hope. And He continues showing that In Christ, we have everything we need. Everything not only um, we need in terms of what we believe or everything we need to be forgiven, but everything we need to live a life that honors God and a life that will lead to the ultimate eternal blessing. So Peter tells us we have received that. And what is absolutely striking in this is that what we've been granted is not only what we need to live a life of godliness, but what we've been given is defined, characterized by the very power of God. The divine power is at work in us, and that divine power has been granted to us and that divine power works out as providing for us everything that is necessary for life and godliness. It is the work of God. It is the power of God at work in us. It's not coming of ourselves, it's not something that we can muster. It is something that is gifted to us, that is granted as a gift, as a present. And that has been granted to us. How? Through the knowledge, again, of the one who called us to his own glory and excellence. Or we could translate that virtue. His perfection. He has called us to that. He is calling us to join in that glory and that excellence. And so as we know this triune God, we are drawn into His own reality by His power. He's at work in us. That's the work of the Spirit, of course. And so in verse 4, Peter continues to build on that and tells us that through these things that have been granted to us for life and godliness, through these, we, again, same word, we have been gifted promises. Promises that are both precious and majestic, grandiose, great, But notice that when he talks about promises, what Peter has in mind is not the promise as I promise I will give you this. What he's talking about is the thing that is promised. We have received what was promised. This is what he's talking about. So you see there's a logic in what he's describing. This is true well, therefore, this is true. This is true, therefore, that is true, and so on. And in fact, that continues in our text. So through the gifts that we've got from uh, the one who called us, we have those promises or those things promised that have been given to us. And, and why were they given to us? Why were they uh, granted to us? Well, so that we might be partakers of, of the divine nature. Who? What? We are to be partakers, sharers in the divine nature? Does it mean we get to be gods too? Uh, This is not a Mormon church. This is not what is in view here. What is in view is the same idea as being called to God's glory and and excellence. We are called to share in the very character of God, His very nature, the kind of person He is. As we are united with Him, as we know Him intimately, as His power is at work in us, we are being transformed, changed into His own image, and our own life starts to look like Him. And so Peter tells us that God has provided all those things for us. He's providing all those things for us so that we will share into His perfections. And notice that some of what is implied by this is that for us to be partakers in this, to have communion with Him in this, we are the kind of people who have fled out or fled away from the world. we have fled away, we have escaped the corruption of the world. And what he means by corruption here is um, not so much the corruption as the process of dying, though that is an implication, but the corruption of our own nature, the moral corruption, the spiritual corruption, how we are sinful, how the world this world is defined by the fall and the sin and the corruption at work in it. And if we are in Christ, we have escaped from that world to enter into the glory of God. The picture that people that, sorry that Peter is drawing from here, not the picture so much as the story that he's drawing from here, is the story of the Exodus. What he has in mind is this pattern that is repeated in Scripture many times, and in the New Testament in particular, that the work of salvation takes us out of a place of spiritual slavery and takes us to a place of perfect bliss and communion with God. Right? Right? And, of course, we just go from one to the other, right? No. There's something in between. Wilderness. The place of testing. The place of trial. The place where there's fire and soap being used. The place where we have to exercise faith and endure and persevere but in 1st peter peter reminds us that that process in that process god is the one who preserves us by his own power and how does he do that he does that through faith faith is the means that god uses to keep us safely by his own power as we go through those trials and He's using it to do His work of redemption, His work of new creation in us, to prepare us for the Day of Judgment, so that on the Day of Judgment, we will be able to withstand it. We will be able to stand in His presence rather than being destroyed by His wrath. And so... The work of God in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is to take us out of this world, of the corruption of this world, to bring us into the glory of God, the glorious reality of God. This is what God has done and is doing for us in Christ and by the power of the Spirit. So, if that is the case, we get to verse 5. Verse 5, basically, Peter says, well... Since this is the case, since this is true, here is one of the logical implications. If this is true, then what? Well, if this is true, we should exercise all haste, or eagerness, or zeal, or earnestness. Not just some, all. Our whole life should be characterized by this eagerness to do what? Well, the eagerness to use what God has given us. To use those promises that have been granted to us. To work out our salvation. To exercise our new nature. To live according to what we are in Christ rather than what we were in the world. Since we have everything, we have no reason not to. We are new creatures. We have a new heart. We have new desires. We have new abilities. We should live in a way that is consistent with that. We, we should be what we are in Christ. And what does it look like? Where here Peter tells us that we should uh, supplement or complement our faith with virtue or excellence. And then he goes on with the list. Now, what Peter is doing here is not giving us a list of things that, like a grocery list that we need to add in our cart and bring home. He's not talking about a list where we can tick things, say, oh, I've got this one, just need to add the next one, and then when I'm done with the list, I'm done. What he's describing is a unified reality, and he's giving us some different aspects or dimensions of it. What he's trying to tell us is this is what the life in Christ looks like. And in fact, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that uh, there are other lists of the same kind, and they don't all have the same elements in them. Because, again, none of them is trying to be an exhaustive exact list. It's just telling us, well, life in Christ is this incredible thing, and here are different dimensions of it. But what all of them tend to do, however, is to point to the fact that that life in Christ starts, is built upon, or depends on, our faith. Faith, which is the work of the Spirit in our hearts, faith, which is a trusting, loving relationship with God and obedience to His Word. And the other thing that those tend to do is to use love as a summary statement of what it looks like to live this way. Love of God, love of His people, what Peter calls the brotherhood, and love of our neighbor. So don't, you know, don't get stuck on that list exactly and say, oh, I need this, this, and that, and once I have those qualities, I'm done. Uh, or start to look at all the lists and say, okay, I need to compile them and make a fuller list. The point of it is not that. The point of it is to kind of uh, give you a, a sense, of, a, a taste of what the whole is. And of course, ultimately, if you want to know what that life looks like, what should you do? Look at Christ. You will have a sense of what that is like. And so Peter is telling us in the first part, he's telling us about what we've been granted by God. So the objective divine reality that is just there. And then he's telling us that being the case, this is kind of how you should live. This is how that should change the way you live. Your life should be an earnest um, exercise of those blessings. And and that's kind of what it looks like, those different things. But he goes beyond that. He gives us a full perspective on what that is. And he tells us at the end in in verse 8 that, and there's a for here, or therefore. For... If these things, the things he just described, those those, those, uh, those spiritual realities, if those are present or are in you and they are growing or multiplying, what happens? Well, if these are present, we are not going to be idle or fruitless. If these are present, that means that we will be earnest in our service to Christ. Then our lives will bear fruits for His kingdom. It's that simple. That's that simple. But notice that he ends this section again, that we will not be idle and unfruitful, in the knowledge, again, of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how it's all relational. It's all connected to this life of relationship with Christ and our union with Him. It's in that context that those things happen. It's, it's in view of that relationship. It's, it's, it's building it, re- strengthening it, deepening it as we seek to not only live according to the new nature we've been given, but to do so for His glory. Now, Peter gives us also a warning. He tells us that if these are not present in our life. So, remember, Peter is writing to Christians here. What he's talking about is not whether you're converted or not, whether you're born again or not. He's talking to Christians. And he's saying, if these are present, this is what's going to happen. But now he's saying, if these are not present, the person in whom those things are not present is like somebody who's blind. He's like somebody whose uh, eyesight is so poor that he can't see. He's telling us that that person is like somebody who has lost their memory. And memory in particular of what? Well, the purification of their sins. It's like somebody who has forgotten what God has done for them and how that has changed them and changed their life and their reality forever and lives as if this had not happened. In other words, if our life does not reflect the character of God or does not reflect this life of personal uh, um, relationship with God, some of it has to do with a failure to exercise our faith and to hang on to the truth of the salvation we have in Christ. And so, Peter says, if this is the case, um, since, I mean, since this is so, uh, we should even more pursue um, or, or uh, be eager or earnest in uh, making our calling and election firm, solid, certain. Now, sometimes we read this and we think that our actions will cause us to feel assured of our calling and election. In other words, we find confirmation that Christ has redeemed us in our obedience. This is not what Peter has in mind here first. What he has in mind here is that as we live the life he is describing, that very act of living it out, exercising it, is a demonstration or confirmation of our election uh, and calling. It is making it firm in the sense that it it is making it concrete. A bit like uh, in the book, in the letter to the Hebrews, we're told that Christ learned obedience by his sufferings, by what he suffered. Obviously, I hope obviously, Christ was obedient internally to His Father in eternity. He didn't have to learn obedience as a child who needs to be corrected. What Hebrews means is that the inner truth and ability of Christ to be obedient was exercised and worked itself out in the context of His suffering. He was obedient not only in terms of his personal commitment to the Father, but in actually what he did. And in that way, his obedience was made firm. And that's what is in view here. Our calling, our election in Christ is made visible, concrete, by our obedience, by our exercising the nature that has been given to us. And Peter tells us, In conclusion, well, first part of the conclusion, um, you know, it's a bit like a preacher that says, and now in conclusion, and you have still 20 minutes, um, it tells us that as or if we do these things, if we practice these things, if we live this way, we will not fall. Now, you may think, wait a second, we're all sinners. We all stumble. So, is Peter telling us that if we are zealous enough, we'll not sin anymore? Remember, it's Peter talking. He knows what we can do. What he has in view here is we're going back to the Exodus. Israel, God took Israel out of Egypt. But what happened on the way to the Promised Land? They didn't trust God. They didn't believe Him. They did not obey Him. And what happened? The entire generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness and did not make it into the promised land, except for Joshua. And so what Peter is saying is that in the work of salvation that God has accomplished in Christ, unlike the Exodus, we who are in Christ are safe. We will not fall in between. We will not fail to enter into the promised land. We have this absolute assurance. But notice that that comes together with the practicing, the using of the blessings that we have in Christ. And he concludes, finally, this section by saying, and thus, for thus... It will be supplied to you richly, what? The entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see? The entrance into that promised land. It's secure, it's certain. And it will be uh, given to us richly, generously by God. Happily, not begrudgingly. And this is our hope. You see, what Peter does in those verses is summarize the gospel. Summarizes for us um, the the biblical teaching about salvation that we have in Christ. Sometimes we think that the gospel is, is some very simple message we are sinners. Jesus died for our sins, and if we believe, we'll be saved. Right? And that leads to things like we've heard before, once saved, always saved. And that means that for often we treat the Christian life as if it is a two-event thing. When we're converted, and when we'll be with Christ. And in between, well, depending on the people, that can be a long cruise. I got my ticket into heaven, heaven, and I'm, now I'm waiting to get there. But in between, there's nothing else that happens. The problem is that is not the way the Bible defines salvation. Salvation is a reality that has an eternal dimension. Election, calling. It has a past dimension in the work that God has done over centuries that has culminated in the person of Christ. It has a past dimension into our lives when God causes causes us to be born again. It does have a future dimension of when Christ will return. But it also has a present dimension. Our salvation is a reality that is at work now. It is something we enjoy now, or at least that we can enjoy now, that we can live by. What Peter describes here about being joined with God in His glory, in His excellence, the kind of things we can pursue, the kind of things we can do, the kind of fruits we can bear, that is salvation. But Peter also emphasizes the fact that there is a future dimension. It's leading us, taking us somewhere. And the rest of the letter, pretty much, will be mostly speaking about that future dimension. And Peter will remind his readers that we are indeed waiting for the return of Christ. But what does that mean? Well, when Christ returns, He returns as the King. He will sit on the throne on earth. And the first thing he will do is judge the world. And in 1 Peter, we're told that that judgment will begin with the house of God, the household of God, us. We will have to give an account for what we have done with the gift that we have received in Christ. Now, we have the assurance of our salvation. We have the assurance of entrance into his kingdom. But we will still have to give an account. And Peter is warning his readers about this. And apparently the false teachers that were at work there denied the coming of Christ and denied the coming judgment. And because they denied it, life, On the earth, waiting for Christ meant do as you please. There is no consequence. There is no significance to whatever you do here. And Peter is saying, no, no. We were redeemed for a purpose. We have a great blessing, and that's a blessing we need to live by now. In fact, what he's saying is, don't be fooled. What the world promises to you, the joys and pleasures of this world, are nothing compared to what you've been granted in Christ. Enjoy the gift you've been given. Don't be shortchanged. Don't do like the Israelites in the wilderness where they said, Oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. There we had onions and, and whatever else. Because what they had was infinitely better. They had God. It is the same for us. Let us not be fooled by the devil, by the world, by the remaining sin in us, to think that what this world promises is better, because it's not. And let's live not only with the assurance that the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ provides for us, but also with the hope of the day He returns. We are going somewhere. Our life has meaning, has significance, an eternal significance. We are going somewhere, and we are sure to arrive to our destination. Please join me in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't change. You are a God who is faithful to his promises. You are a God who binds himself by the covenant. We thank you that in Christ, the covenant of grace has been completed, has been fulfilled. Thank you that uh, you have given us everything in him. And thank you that your spirit is at work within us and among us. We thank You that we can share in Your glory and enjoy Your glory and enjoy Your perfections and that we can reflect them, mirror them in our life and in this world. Father, as we finish this this time of considering Your Word, we want to pray with the church of all centuries, of all times, the prayer that we find at the end of the book of Revelation. Please come, Lord Jesus. In His name, amen.